Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-centered leader in confessional broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians read through the book of Concord and discuss what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture and our Lutheran confession of the faith. On today's show, we're going to continue Article 7 from the epitome of the Formula of Concord. We're going to pick up the second half of, there's several negative statements here. We began that last week. We're going to conclude those negative statements and do a wrap-up summary here today, taking a look at those teachings that we reject and condemn because they're against Scripture with regard to the teaching on the Holy Supper of Christ. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And my companion confessor in conversation about this article today is Pastor Tyrell Bramwell. He is the pastor of St. Mark's in Ferndale, California. He's also author of the book, Come In, We're Closed. Pastor Bramwell, welcome back to Concord Matters. Thank you for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. And an honor to have you again for a second week in a row as we we had to just break these uh, negative statements up. I, I thought last week you and I, we were kind of rushing there at the end, and perhaps we could have fit these in, but I feel like that there's a lot to talk about here. And then, as I even have said for four weeks in a row now, that this article is probably one of the ones that was the most contentious at the time of the writing of the Formula of Concord. It, it, it remains so today. I mean, when we talk about the Lord's Supper, this is important to the church. It's important scripture. It was important to Christ. It was his last will and testament, as you so well put for us and, and our other confessors on this article have as well. The last words he has before he goes and suffers and dies for our salvation. And so the Lord's Supper is very important for the church and especially for us as Lutherans. And so clear confession on this is certainly very important. And so I just, I didn't really want to rush at the end of last week's uh, show. And so we'll have plenty of summary kind of wrap up pulling this all together and other implications of what we confess here to talk about today as well. So I'm glad to have you back on as we wrap up these negative statements, though. Yeah, I'm doubly blessed to be here. All right. Thanks, you. (laughs) All right. Well, let's go ahead and get into it then. So we're going to be picking up with paragraph 37. This is negative theses or negative statement number 16. From the Epitome of the Formula of Concord, Article 7, The Holy Supper of Christ. And again, we read from Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord, available to you from Concordia Publishing House, the publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. All right, paragraph 37. Unbelieving, unrepentant Christians do not receive Christ's true body and blood in the Holy Supper, but only bread and wine. I'm going to go on and pick up the next two paragraphs here as well, but I want to remind our listeners, and maybe I should have said this before I started reading that even, again, these are negative statements. These are things that we do not agree with, all right? All right, continue on with uh, paragraph 38, negative theses number 17. At this heavenly meal, the worthiness of the guest comes not only from true faith in Christ, but also from people's outward preparation. And then paragraph 39, negative theses 18, Even the true believers who have and hold a true, living, pure faith in Christ can receive this sacrament to their judgment, for they are still imperfect in their outward life. All right, so the confessors make some distinctions here. It has to deal with worthiness and and who's receiving what's going on in the Lord's Supper. And again, these are negative things, negative statements, so we don't agree with these. What's at stake with the distinction that the confessors make here between the recipients and their worthiness? Yeah, it's very important for us to understand this language of worthy, unworthy. And it it kind of baffles me how we get into this problem that we even do get into this problem of having to reject this teaching, especially when you consider 1 Corinthians 11, 27, where Paul writes very clearly, 
Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So how is it now that we can get into a teaching, and we rightly, as Lutherans, reject this teaching, that someone can partake of this, receive this, and their unworthiness and their worthiness being, having it not even come up in, 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 to consideration. This first paragraph we start with, I know you lumped them all together. As we break them apart a little and try to dissect them, this one, if you remember from last week, it does have a sister issue. It has a sister paragraph. Way back up in paragraph 23, negative statement number two, on the other side of our Lutheran battle, as the Lutherans find themselves sort of uh, at odds with both the Roman Catholic Church and the Sacramentarians on the Reformed side, we're dealing with worthiness and unworthiness on both sides of the aisle here. Number two, the negative statement that we reject, the papistic sacrifice of the mass for the sins of the living and the dead, also has to do with an unworthy handling of the meal, an unworthy uh, engagement with it as the priests were accepting fees for doing masses, that too is unworthy. So whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner, and that could be any kind of manner, as we're seeing here on both sides of the spectrum. Anytime we are receiving it in a poor way, we're going to be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. That's just what it says. So to say someone, an unbelieving person or an unrepentant Christian, is not receiving Christ's true body and blood is directly against what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians. You mentioned, and thank you for that, a uh, little plug for my book, Come In, We're Closed. This teaching right here gets to the, the issue of open and closed communion, because if there's no concern about drinking and eating to your judgment on yourself, if there's no concern about this sort of thing, the guilt concerning the body and blood of the Lord, it doesn't really matter who takes it, who partakes of, of the meal. The danger there, the risk, is null and void. And so you can see, Lutherans can see, how the Reformed wouldn't, would be able to have more of an open practice in our American evangelical churches. The problem is, there is a danger, there is a risk, and so how do we handle that? And now we get into the closed communion practices. If we want to go on to paragraph 38 and start to kind of dive deep into that particular phrasing, we see that at this heavenly meal, the worthiness of the guest comes not only from true faith in Christ, and already, here you go, you, you can see sort of a, a gentle wading into trouble, not only from true faith in Christ, but also, let's attack something on here, also from people's outward preparation, and I'm sure listeners can tell where I'm going with the tone of my voice, that anytime you're adding something and also to the Lord and to faith in Christ, you're going to get into trouble. This here is, is dealing with the problem of turning this gift that we receive in the Lord's Supper into a work. The gospel that we get from our Lord into a law, that which we must do in order to be worthy guests. And we, we see it attached to our outward preparation. Biblical Christianity always teaches done, not do. Christ did everything for us, and we receive it as gift. There is nothing left for us to do. These Reformed teachings, as we start to consider that, especially in relation to the Lord's Supper, teach that the Christian must do something in order to be worthy of the gift. And that right there contradicts the very definition of the term gift. A gift is undone. You don't have to do anything to receive it. At Christmas time, I'm not giving my wife and children gifts because they earned them, but they did something to deserve the present. I'm giving it to them because I want to, out of my own love for them, I want to give it to them unearned. Nothing that they've done to deserve it. So there's no and also. There is no Christ and the outward preparation you've done to receive it. We talk about the Lord's Supper as a foretaste of the heavenly banquet, a 
of the feast to come. And if the Christian recognizes from Scripture that there is nothing we can do to earn our heavenly banquet, the final Lord, you know, the, the marriage feast that we are awaiting on Resurrection Day, if there's nothing we can do to earn that, why then would we let something creep into our understanding that we can do something to earn this foretaste, the appetizer, if you will, to our heavenly banquet. Scripture doesn't teach that. The Lutheran confessions obviously reject it. We see Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 are here. Romans three twenty eight are here. Faith alone, not by works, by grace. We see gift language. And so this also, as we look at the affirmative statements, which is now a few episodes back in your lineup here, but if you look at the affirmative statements, number, uh, I think it's eight and nine, is the counterpart to this, the things we, we do teach. Affirmative statement number eight, we believe, teach, and confess also that there is only one kind of unworthy guest, those who do not believe. About these guests, it is written in John 3.18, whoever does not believe is condemned already. And this judgment becomes greater and more grievous, being aggravated by the unworthy use of the Holy Supper, 1 Corinthians 11.29. And then number nine, we believe, teach, and confess that no true believer, as long as he has living faith, however weak he may be, receives the Holy Supper to his judgment. No believer, as long as he has living faith, however weak he may be, receives the Holy Supper to his judgment. For the Supper was instituted especially for Christians weak in faith, yet repentant. It was instituted for their consolation and to strengthen their weak Matthew 9, 12, 11, 5, and 11, 28. So then on to Hang part on there. of this, Bef- uh, before you go this on, three groups. Before oh, you sure. go on real quick, as we had in the affirmative statements, we talked about the connection with the small catechism and the wonderful question that Martin Luther includes in there, who receives this sacrament worthily? And yeah. especially as we get 1 Corinthians 11, you can receive this in an unworthy manner, right? And I think you covered well there. This is a connected issue when it comes to close communion then too, right? Is that right? The, the fear is, is that the pastor is making a judgment. You know, when a person comes in and we ask them to speak with the pastor and we have a discussion with them, their fear is, especially for those who know that they've probably been away from church for a while. Maybe at one time they were confirmed in the church, but they haven't been around for a long time. And maybe they've even been going to another denomination and really even made their membership in another denomination. But hey, they were confirmed Lutheran or, you know, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. But they come to the pastor and the pastor saying, I don't think it's a good idea for you to commune with us today. Well, pastor, you've just said that they're unworthy. And that's a hard thing them to hear, right? And we talk rightly about what makes us worthy, faith in Christ. And so we certainly have the positive side, but is there an appropriate time to say, I'm sorry, you're not worthy to receive the Lord's Supper here with us? Can that be done in a loving way? Oh, of course. And it's actually the only way to be loving in terms of communion, to allow someone to to take communion, to avoid the discomfort of saying, you're living in an unrepentant manner. You've been gone for a very long time. So whether you realize it or not, you have been rejecting the Lord's will for your life. You have, you've been uh, denying that he wants you to be here, to hear his word. And, and therefore you've been sinning against the third commandment. To, to have that conversation is the hard thing to do. So we, we like to avoid confrontation, right? And so it's so tempting to just let someone go to the rail and receive this. And for Lutherans who go back to the Bible, who understand, as you're pointing out, that Luther so well puts into his small catechism, that there is one way of being worthy, and that is to have faith that the Lord gave his body and blood for us, for the forgiveness of our sins. So to just gloss over that and allow someone to come to the rail is to do a disservice to them. And as I started to say, the whole point of that was to say that the only way to show love to someone is to say, wait a minute, pump the brakes for a second. Do you know what you've been missing? Are you repentant of your sins? Do you know that you've been sinning? Perhaps you don't even know what you're being absent for all this time, that it potentially was sinful, that there might not be a good reason, that sitting at home and watching TV on Sunday morning is not a good reason to be missing church. 
that you're, you're rejecting what the Lord would have for you in your life. And so there's some pastoral counsel that needs to go in there. And that is the loving thing. I, I oftentimes like to bring this back to parental relationships. You know, when I, when I tell my children no, it's because I love them. It is not because I'm a mean dad who just likes to say no. So oftentimes you hear uh, psychologists or you know, self-help book type folks talk about how parents are in the, in the business of saying no. And there, there may be something to that, but why? Because we love our children. I don't want my child running into the street when a car passes by, and so I tell her, no, don't go there. I love you too much to see you get hit by the, the Chevy truck going by. Right. Same thing with communion. As a pastor, I've been called to be a steward of these mysteries. I've been called to be a, a person there to help guide in love the flock under my care. And so when someone comes into the sanctuary and just expects to receive the Lord's Supper, I have to show them what it is, why they want it, what it does for us, who gave it to them, and all the different things that go into it. So they receive it to their blessing and not to their detriment. That, as you said, Pastor Smith, that is the loving thing. I, I love to hang on that word love because in American culture, we misuse that word like nobody's business. Love to us, we use that, the, the same mean, the same word with a different meaning, right? I love a Snickers bar and I love Holy Communion. What? Okay, well, you can use those words if you want, but make sure you understand you're using them in two different ways. I like a Snickers bar a lot. I love receiving communion in its truest fashion for what it is. And I'm not going to let someone, as a pastor now, speaking as a pastor, I'm not going to let someone take this to their judgment, to their detriment, if that person has been given to me to care for. It's hard for our evangelical friends who show up in a Lutheran church. It's hard for them to understand this. And we, and we should have a sensitivity toward them for sure, uh, a sympathy and a love for them because they haven't been taught the actual biblical understanding of what is happening. And so it is, it does come across kind of rude that we would say, no, you can't have this because they don't understand. They, they, there's a sense of entitlement. And you can understand as we've been going through these negative statements that why it would shock them that some pastor would exercise some judgment over their lives when everything, as we've been seeing, is a spiritualization. Everything is internal and everything is about them and the Lord, nobody else needs to be involved, especially not a cleric in our day of anti-clericalism that we live in. You, you stand over there in judgment, and therefore I'm going to do everything I can to reject you and, and dismiss you. And that's a knee-jerk reaction. We're all like that. You know, the cop pulls you over, and you instantly start, you're getting into this demeanor of, I didn't do anything wrong, and you, you become defensive. Well, the same kind of thing happens in church when the pastor rightly, not wanting to be guilty of malpractice, when he rightly says, I love that you want to take communion. I so appreciate that. But I don't know if you're ready to receive it because I don't know you. This is the first time you ever walked in here. Just like a pharmacist, right? A pharmacist just doesn't give out medicine willy-nilly. Anybody who walks up to the counter says, I want some medicine. The pharmacist says, well, do you have a prescription? Well, no, but I want it anyway. Oh, hold on a second. Let's work out some details first. I'd be happy to give you the medicine that you need, but I need to know for sure that you understand what you're receiving. So let me tell you about it. If you do have a prescription, let me tell you how to take it and we can go from there. If you don't have a prescription, well then <laughs> go see the doctor first. So yeah, all that we're ever doing with closed communion is loving these people who come into our door. It seems opposite because we live in a predominantly reformed culture who don't have the proper understanding of what Scripture teaches, which is, like I was about to take us to the next uh, paragraph, it deals with judgment. And I'm so glad you slowed us down so we could talk about that. You know, we take communion to strengthen our weak faith. That should be understood. Communion is not something we receive already as strong athletes in the race, right? Communion is something we take as weak athletes, people who barely know how to walk people who barely know how to even put their feet in front of them, we come to the Lord's table that he would strengthen, he would strengthen us, that he would be like daddy with his arms under the two-year-old's armpits there, helping the toddler, or maybe not two, maybe a little younger than that, helping the toddler learn how to first take those steps. Right? That's where we're at with communion. We see that it's good to be doing, but we don't know how to do it. 
And so we come to communion to be strengthened. It is for the weak in faith who still believes, the believer, of course, who trusts that this is given and shed for them and then is built up in that. Not receiving judgment. We reject that as we get into paragraph 39. We reject that, that, that someone who's a true believer can still somehow haphazardly end up taking this to their judgment. Well, there's no certainty or comfort at all in there. Just like I was talking about earlier, about turning this gift into a law, into a work. Oh my goodness, by the time we get into paragraph 39, there is nothing but despair there. If that's the teaching that we would accept, that this idea that a true believer who holds to a true, living, pure faith in Christ can still receive the sacraments of their judgment, for they are still imperfect in their outward life. Oh my goodness. What horror. My life will always be outwardly sinful and wrong. I will, it will always be imperfect on this side of the resurrection. That's precisely why I need to go to communion, to have the certainty that though my outward preparation is lacking, I am still forgiven of my sin. That it has nothing to do with my outward preparation and has everything to do with Christ and what he's done for me. All I do is receive that by saying, I believe it to be true. I have faith in it, though my faith is weak. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Which I think is the point of connection with those. And, and I think you phrase that really well. It, it's a loving thing to say, based on your confession or lack of confession by not coming for a while, or, mm-hmm. or again, whatever the case may be, the, the loving thing may be to, to make that judgment and say, I'm not sure that this is best for you now, but let's have a conversation about this later. And of course, I've seen it. I'm sure you've seen it. Sometimes people get offended. I often like to say it's almost cliche, but it's like, you know, you're making a judgment on me as a pastor here too, that, <laughs> that what we confess in our church body is irrelevant. And, and so that's a judgment. So if we're worried about judging one another, why is it okay for you to judge me, but not me to judge you? And, and also, especially when we talk about, you know, Hebrews 13 and submitting to those who have authority over you, that it may go well for you because they have to give an account on the last day. How loving is it towards your pastor to show up on Sunday morning, five minutes before the service when he's got all sorts of other things running through his mind too, as we all do, and try to have this conversation then? That's not very loving. I mean, I'm sure there's times where you travel somewhere kind of last minute, but it rarely is the case where you're showing up at the last minute and you didn't expect to be in the area or something like that, right? Uh, do your homework if you're traveling, call, talk to the pastor, allow time for a conversation. If you got loved ones, family that are coming in say, hey, we need to talk to pastor before Sunday morning and make sure you sort those things out and make sure the pastor knows because it's also not very loving to stand up there at the rail and have to try and make a decision because maybe they even came in late or things like that. So let's love one another and allow time for these important conversations. Yeah, the, the love thing here is, uh, it kind of came to a head, a little personal story from my, my life as a pastor. I once had a conversation with my elders as we were trying to sort out closed communion and best practices and why we do what we do and just teaching on it. And I had the opportunity to mention that I wasn't raised Lutheran and that my family still isn't Lutheran. And when my mom comes to visit, I love my mom so much that I would not commune her. And I was amazed that, my room of elders, some of them just didn't grasp that at, at the first mention of it. The default seems to be in our American context that if I love my mom, I will commune her. Of course I would. But no, the opposite is actually true. If she is not of the same confession, and if she doesn't believe what Scripture is teaching here, then out of love for her, whether it's as my mother or just as a pastor for anyone, I'm not going to commune her. That's a hard thing, I think, for people to get in our day and age, because we, we confuse love with civility, I think, with being polite. I think that's where a lot of our conflict comes in, because it doesn't seem polite when someone walks into the room and they start going to the rails to stop them abruptly. And that's to what you're saying, Pastor, is you know, it's not loving for the person expecting to receive it to just expect to receive it either. There's that sense of entitlement. That's not loving for the pastor. Absolutely. We got to really start using our language appropriately and understanding. And I think when people, when you walk them through it, you know, at the end of my little story there with my elders, the end of the story was they finally started to get it. And as we move forward in our study of communion, with each passing week, they got it more and more and more. It's not complicated. 
it's just not as familiar to the American people, uh, church people, as we would like as Lutherans. And it's important to to cite that it's Scripture that gives us this language of worthiness, and that we should Amen. be considering these things as you so well brought in First Corinthians 11. And I agree, if we truly believe what God gives to us in Holy Scripture, I think this simple confession of the small catechism has been really helpful for me and having some confidence and saying, yeah, I'm sorry, you're unworthy, simply because anyone who does not believe these words or doubts them is unworthy and unprepared. That's what we're taught in a very simple way in Luther's small catechism from a very young age. Fathers teach it to their children, right? And mm-hmm. so we need to be able to confess that. And of course, as we always recognize, and as this show brings up quite a lot, confession, Jesus himself tells us, will bring hatred from the world. And so you're, I'm there with you. However, I was going to yeah. say, but we're, now we're up against a break, so we're going to have to take a break here. But I was going <laughs> to say, I, I think that was an excellent point to say, but we can also exercise that judgment and, and say, I'm sorry, I don't think you're worthy here, but let's continue the conversation. But also to consider that they probably have some understandings as it pertains to outward preparation and those sorts of things. I think that is the connecting factor with paragraph 39, but we'll just go ahead and have to pick that up after this break. So please come right back. LCMS Disaster Response and Training provides guidance and counsel to congregations seeking to show mercy to their neighbors before, during, and after disasters. From congregation preparedness to equipping volunteers in our Lutheran Early Response Team training, we can help you engage your community, particularly those who are suffering in any way with the love of Christ. For more information, you can follow us on Facebook, keyword LCMS Disaster Response, or visit our website at lcms.org forward slash disaster. And welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue our look at the epitome of the formula of Concord, Article 7, the negative statements of Pastor Tyrell Bramwell, pastor of St. Mark's in Ferndale, California, and author of the book, Come In, We're Closed. And just before the break here, we were talking about 37 and 38, talking about the worthiness. And I thought, great discussion there tying into closed communion. I really liked your point that you brought out about we can be loving and gentle towards those who just come from a different background or at least the influence in America. I feel like I've said it every week on this article in particular the the huge reformed thinking that has just dominated broad American Christianity. And ironically, as it was influential at the time of the writing of the Formula of Concord, as we've talked about specifically with this one, you have those crypto-Calvinists who their teachings were coming into the Lutheran church. But that also still dominates American Christianity today and can be influential in our church, even for our folks that have been born and raised and catechized Lutheran. And so we can be gentle towards them and recognize that they may have some false understandings about what we believe, teach, and confess. And we we just have to live in the tension of, yes, there is a place to make judgments and and they're making judgments against us and and what we say and what we teach when we gather together. And so I think one of the things, just to set this up, and then you can take it, Pastor Bramwell, on paragraph 39. But I think one of the things that at least in my encountering of uh, the conversations that they're really worried about is that I'm judging not even so much what they confess. I, I think for most Americans, we don't even think about what we confess, just to be honest. But they're judging the outward things, which is what we're not judging, right? We're not talking about outward preparation. That's not what we're talking about when it comes to worthiness. We're talking about, do you have faith in what Christ gives to us in his own words? But I think their thinking is on outward things. You're saying I'm not a good enough Christian because I haven't done any sort of outward acts. And so go ahead. And I think that does tie in then and connect us into paragraph 39 when it comes to even our own consideration of worthiness. And I know I've encountered a lot of Lutherans that struggle with this. You know, have I done enough? Do I believe this enough? And those sorts of things in, in terms of coming to the Lord's Supper. Throwing a lot at there, you there, there, so go ahead. Yeah, no, that's good. There does seem to be 
an interesting intersection with the Reformed culture, as you mentioned, in America, American evangelicalism, and Lutheran teaching, and when those two interact, when someone visits a church or something. And you're absolutely right. What is being judged, what is the center of our attention is not the internal. It, it is the outward stuff, which is the very thing we're saying we're not worried about. We're not dealing with. I was thinking about this over the break as well, and maybe this will help me get to all that you threw at me in, in my own kind of way. While we were on break, I was thinking, you know, for the, the casual Christian, the, the person who calls himself a Christian, but who has not been in church for a while, who is wandering back, who is maybe seeking, right, is searching for something, and they come into church with a reformed framework in mind. As I was looking at these last three paragraphs that we're looking at right now, I was thinking to myself, you know, the reformed teaching, the sacramentarian teaching here, if we were to accept it, would mean for that casual Christian a much sterner judgment than what the Lutheran pastor is confronting him with. I don't know if that makes sense. But with the impetus on the outward preparation that the reformed are teaching that we're rejecting, and with that physical preparation and the works that they're bringing, that better scare you to pieces if you're of that mindset that you're going to receive this supper. If you're a Reformed Christian or American Evangelical Christian just strolling in on a Sunday morning just expecting to take communion, you know, that kind of defies your teaching. The Lutherans, by focusing on Scripture, by focusing on what worthiness actually means, and that is just believing the words to be true, what Jesus says to be true, actually takes all the pressure off. So you would think that we would find Lutherans being more casual in their engagement with the Lord's Supper. Oh, I can just walk in and walk out and willy-nilly, and perhaps many of us are guilty of that. But when it comes to the offense of closed communion, as we were talking before the break, and dealing with worthiness, and dealing with outward preparation, and judgment, and these sorts of things with outward life, the imperfect outward life. I would much rather be a Lutheran and deal with what Jesus has done for me, and that all I have to do is believe it, than try to be in any other camp that's going to pile on outward preparations and external lifestyles and make me work toward perfection on my own before I can even receive the gift of that, which is going to strengthen me to do that. Okay, so I got a couple questions connected here. You brought up yeah. that the Reformed talk about outward preparation. I think this might be a little confusing for some folks. Maybe some are, are thinking, and I know that's certainly what, what I have thought at times too, is that maybe the outward preparation would be more focused on the Roman Catholics who talk about fasting and, and those sorts of outward preparation works that Luther addresses as well in the small catechism as fine outward training, he says. Mm -hmm. and, and we generally think of that outward preparation in terms of the Roman Catholics. But what would some of that outward preparation be with reference to the Reformed? Because I, I don't know that we generally think that the, the Reformed actually encourage too much outward preparation. Well, oh yeah. Well, this is very interesting. You, you end up finding that the Reformed and the Roman Catholic tend to be much closer but just from two different angles. So oftentimes Lutherans get labeled as being too Roman Catholic because people will look at the liturgy and the fact that we still do have the, the Lord's Supper as the center of the divine service and that a lot of our outward actions in our worship service are very much still liturgical in practice. With regards to the Reform of the Roman Catholic and these outward activity and this preparation, consider the teaching that we're getting. On the Roman Catholic, there is you must do this and you must do that in order to be able to receive, right? You have Hail Marys and Our Fathers, and, and there are these works that you must accomplish in order to obtain the worthiness to be able to get blessed by God and to get further along in your path. For the Reform, the same thing happens in a much more, well, in, in our contemporary day, I think, casual way, not speaking to the 1500s per se, but to America today as these things intersect. You know, we have seven ways to improve your marriage, the things you must do as a father to better your children's life, 12 steps to a much more successful Christian life, these sorts of things. They are the exact same thing. They are things that you do that are outwardly done to prepare you to better walk with Jesus. Now, I don't know if that exactly addresses the communion issue, but that's definitely at play here with both sides and the Roman Catholic side and the, and the sacramentary and the Reformed side of things. Everything ends up landing in the, the land of the law. 
the things you must do. And anytime we're talking about what we must do, like I said in the beginning segment, we're no longer talking about biblical Christianity because biblical Christianity teaches that which is done by Christ. So anytime we go back to the outward preparation and the outward life, and we try to think that we must do something to contribute, that we have to prepare ourselves to be worthy, we're wading into troubled waters. As we look at, we're going to see this in a few more paragraphs, but I might as well just give you a teaser now. The beauty about Lutheranism is the beauty of historic Christianity, where we say only as much as Scripture says. And that really is what's at issue here. We say neither more nor less than what Scripture has to say on a given issue, which is why we land on the Lord's Supper saying, this is my body. I don't know what else to tell you guys. This is what the Lord said. I can say no more and no less. Where on both Rome's side of the aisle and the Reform side of the aisle, we have this necessity to fill in the voids, to fill in the, the sacramental mystery, right? As that's what the word means, mystery. To fill in the mystery with human reason and the works we must do in order to make it work in our, in our head, to make sense of it all. This sort of thinking leads into what is very common in the church today, and, and again, even influences us as Lutherans, that I basically have to clean up my life or, or make myself look a certain way or at least be working on it in order to be worthy in church. And I think that this is all tied into things we talk about on the show all the time. It's a different understanding of what worship is and what happens when we gather together as the church. That It's about me praising God and that it somehow has to be worthy before him. And that's just all works, right? It's just all works. And it's never going to be good enough. And so I think you're right that it takes on very different forms, but it becomes about this outward preparation that I have to you know, ascend up into heaven, as we talked last week, is that reformed thinking and that I do it by the way that I live my life in faith in those words. But then I think the connecting matter in here, too, when it comes into this matter of true believers receiving into their judgment, I think that this one shows up probably in the Lutheran church a good bit. I've known quite a few folks that are scared to death to go to receive communion because they have this, again, kind of whether it's from the Roman Catholic or Reformed or, or just from wrong thinking and it's our own sinful nature at work, that I somehow have to really be believing this. I have to really be sorry for my sins. I really have to have my life cleaned up and together in order for me to go up to that rail up there. So go ahead and deal specifically with paragraph 39 here now. Yeah, well, as you say that, the unbelieving, unrepentant Christian that opens this section up, oftentimes I wonder this. You know, as I alluded, I'm, I'm kind of the only Lutheran in my family. And it makes me wonder... As we talk about unbelieving and unrepentant Christians, they're not receiving Christ's true body and blood in paragraph 37. Is it because they can't get to heaven by faith, right? If you're unbelieving, you can't ascend to heaven. If we can't get to heaven, then maybe we shouldn't be even trying to, for the Lutheran, trying to go forward to the altar. If I can't believe enough, if I'm doubting whether I believe, well, ooh, I better stay away. And I do think that there's some danger there. So let's get to 39 like you asked. So even the true believer can receive this sacrament to their judgment. This takes that previous bad teaching of outward preparation, and it just runs with it, as is clear from the statement, right? For they are still imperfect in their outward life. Now, the believer has faith in Christ. So when Christ says the Christian is forgiven of his sin, when you come together, it will not be for judgment. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty four. So when you are forgiven of your sins, dear Christian listening to this, thinking about the Lord's Supper, thinking about going to the rail, and you're wondering, do I believe enough? When you trust that you are forgiven of your sins, when you come together for the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11.34 tells you, it will not be for judgment. I often tell people this, and this was first told to me by my pastor before I was a pastor. Pastor, how do I know if I believe? What if I'm not believing rightly? How do I know? My first pastor told me, just by virtue of you asking that question, is evidence of your belief, of your desire to believe, to be doing rightly, to trust in this stuff. So stop trying to mine how deeply you believe, or in the Reformed language, stop trying to hunt through heaven. Stop trying to wonder, have I ascended to heaven? Have I got to the, the highest heaven to where I can receive this meal? No, no. By virtue of asking that question of whether you believe or not, do I believe? If it worries you that you might not believe, you are a believer. Trust in the Lord and his word. When you come together for the Lord's Supper, it will not be for judgment. I don't care what the Reformed teach. That's what Paul tells us. That's what God tells us. 
And I think returns us quite beautifully to the small catechism that anyone who believes these words for you, that's what these words require, is that we believe. We believe that Jesus says, this is my body and my blood given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And that's what's required at the sacrament. That's Mm -hmm. the worthiness. And it's a worthiness given to us by Christ. It returns us to what you said earlier. It's all gift. Now, this, by the way, doesn't negate any of our as Luther says in the small catechism, this fine outward training, whether that be fasting, whether that be working on and improving your marriage or whatever else of those sorts of examples that we gave. For more on that, you can just return to Formula of Concord Article 4 on good works, where we covered our right understanding of good works. And then also five, the proper distinction of law and gospel. If you think that you're going to be saved by it or that you have anything to contribute here in being a better Christian, making yourself more worthy to Christ, well, then you don't have a right understanding of it. However, if living in the grace of God, you realize his word really is good for my life and I desire to live in this, well, then that comes into terms of what we call piety. Living the pious Christian life is a good thing, and we certainly encourage that. We certainly encourage good works. We certainly encourage this kind of right living. You know, we thought we might not have enough to cover with only a few paragraphs here, but here we're already pushing through and uh, (laughs) we we still have several paragraphs and and some other issues to talk about. But I think that this was a great conversation that we certainly could go much longer on. But I'm going to push this forward and just take paragraph 40 here. And I think that this has a matter of piety connected with it as well. So paragraph 40, negative theses number 19. Again, this is something we do not agree with. This is a statement that we do not confess. The external visible elements of the bread and wine should be adored in the Holy Sacrament. I think first we got to understand what is it we mean by adored here and maybe distinguish that from what I'll call reverence just to kind of set up there where I think it would be helpful for us to have this conversation. What is it that we're talking about adored? We, we don't adore the bread and wine but do we not have a certain reverence towards the bread and wine, especially in the Lutheran Church? And I think positively so, being recovered all the more in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Yeah, our adoration, to be very clear about it, the adoration is toward the body and blood. It's toward Christ. They come in with and under the bread and wine. And so there is a reverence toward the bread and wine where there is an adoration for Christ. That that kind of cuts right to it. The accusation is that those who, like Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, like our, our forefathers, give so much reverence to what's happening in this meal. The accusation is that we're actually worshiping the physical elements of bread and wine, that our attention is there. But the attention is to where the promise has been given, where God has attached his word to the bread and wine to give us Christ, to give us his real body and blood in this sacrament. So the adoration is toward the body and blood of our Lord and his word, that promises it's there, whereas reverence is to the vessel, if you will, the, the element that he's using to give it to us. This is the same reason you, you brought up a loving pastor, right? When, when a person walks into the church and is expecting to take communion, but hasn't is a visitor and hasn't really talked with the pastor, same kind of thing. You don't adore, you know, worship your pastor, but you certainly respect him for being the man that God has called to serve you with his lips, his mouth, to proclaim God's word. And so there is a certain, and in fact, we could start mining the reasons why we use the title reverence for our pastors, right? There is a reverence toward the man, not an adoration, but a reverence, not a worship, but a reverence toward the pastor as a means of delivering to us the grace of God. Same goes for the bread and wine. I suppose you could say the same thing goes for the water and baptism as well. I think that's really important because I think we understand that we should have a reverence. Lutherans will kneel when we come forward for communion. Lutherans, we certainly have a a great reverence when we as people come forward and receive it. And also as pastors, we show this reverence. It's a practice I've recovered, kneeling when saying the words of institution and showing that reverence that, yes, this is Christ's body and blood in, with, and under this bread and wine here. And so I think you nailed it right on the head there. A great place for us to focus is that Jesus himself tells us this is so, and we believe it. And so we have this adoration of Christ. This is your word, and we believe that, and that's a great comfort to us. And so we're very reverent and respectful when we come to that. 
and connection of how we view the relationship with a pastor. I mean, there's lots of things that we can certainly go on about here. One of the ones that I commonly make, just because of how I know how our American minds work, it sometimes we're so, as you said earlier, anti-clerical, but yet we can see it when it comes to, uh, say, an American soldier that's killed in action. We want the formality of the ceremony of the funeral and the 21-gun salute, and we love all of those sorts of things, and they are very moving. And we certainly could be in danger of adoring the particular person who has lost their life uh, in service to our country. But I think most often, and it is a right thing to do here, is, is that their life has been sacrificed in the defense of our American freedom. And so this whole ceremony and reverence that goes around it is a very good thing to honor what is being served there, even more so when it comes to the sacrifice of Christ Jesus on the cross for our eternal salvation, right? I'm not against the ceremony that is attached to the funeral of an American soldier. I certainly commend it as, as a fine thing. But all the more so when it comes to Christ, if we're going to have that reverence in an American civil ceremony, we should certainly have that sort of reverence when it comes to Christ. But understanding what's going on there. All right. We need to push forward because we only have a few minutes left here. But some other things to tie in with that presence of Christ in, with, and under the bread and wine. Paragraphs 41 and 42, and then this will close us out. Likewise, we also hand over all proud, frivolous, blasphemous questions, which decency forbids us to mention, and other expressions to God's just judgment. Most blasphemously, and with great offense to the church, such things are proposed by the sacramentarians in a crass, carnal, capernetic way about the supernatural heavenly mysteries of this sacrament. We utterly reject and condemn the Capernetic eating of Christ's body as though we taught that his flesh were torn with the teeth and digested like other food. The sacramentarians, against the testimony of their conscience, after all our frequent protests, willfully label us with this view. In this way, they make our teaching hateful to their hearers. On the other hand, we hold and believe, according to the simple words of Christ's testament, the true yet supernatural eating of Christ's body and also the drinking of his blood, Human senses and reason do not comprehend. But as in all other articles of faith, our reason is brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, citing 2 Corinthians 10.5. This mystery is not grasped in any other way than through faith alone, and it is revealed in the word alone. All right. So do we uh, chew on Jesus and drink his blood in the supper? Is yeah, <laughs> that, That's what's being claimed by the Reformed. Yeah, and 21... You know, paragraph 21 almost seems to be the answer to paragraph 20, a further explanation of it. And you're absolutely right. We, again and again, throughout this controversy that led up to the writing of this document, we see that you know, Lutherans were accused of that cannibalistic, capernetic eating. And, and I love how this is put here, the very beginning of 20, we also hand over all proud, frivolous, frivolous, blasphemous questions which decency forbids us to mention. So you know, what does the body do to the Lord's body if we are chewing it with our teeth and, and the rest of the, what happens after you consume food? That is why we end up going to 2 Corinthians 10.5 at the very end, the wrap up of this, is that these are frivolous and they are not what we're teaching. We are simply saying our conscience is held bound to God's word. We are using our, our reason in a ministerial way. That, that means in, in a way that is under God's word, that is informed and normed by God's word, rather than trying to do like they have been doing and have a magisterial reason that rules over God's word and tries to nitpick and pull apart all these little different parts and follow it through in ways that it wasn't meant to really be considered. Because I just get you into trouble. I often like to think of, this topic in terms of constellations. And I got this from a brother pastor of ours, a friend of mine from the seminary years ago. And we were trying to dis discern and discuss uh, how heresies arise in the church. And anytime man starts to say more than what scripture says, or starts to see different constellations out of the stars of God's word, we're getting into trouble. You know, the Big Dipper is the Big Dipper. We see it's the Big Dipper, but there are many more stars in the universe. They all don't make up a constellation. I, I bring that in to say this. Here is this understanding that we are eating our Lord's body in a sacramental way, a supernatural way, 
We're not saying we're eating it in a caffeinetic way or as the affirmative statements and the introduction talk about uh, a, a local way. This isn't about a, a local presence, but it is still a very true presence. We don't need to form constellations that are going to get us in trouble. And that's, that's what's beautiful about Lutheranism. It shuts down before it gets itself into trouble. It says, ah, I see a beautiful star right there. Ah, I see another beautiful star right there. I'm not going to try to connect them and make a constellation where there isn't a constellation to be made. That's a really interesting image. And just with one minute left here, and you can bring it to a close, to put a point on it, you talked about that local way. We as Lutherans confess a true presence of Christ. And what we're being accused of is a physical presence, as we talked about before. Right. If you know, you put it under a microscope that you'll actually see Jesus cells in there or something like that. Why is a true presence important for our confession? One minute and go ahead and close us out. You betcha. The true presence gets to true forgiveness of sins. So if we only have a symbolic presence of Christ at the altar, well, we only have a symbolic forgiveness of sins because it is in the presence of our Lord, the promise that our Lord has given us, where we find the forgiveness of our sins, that which the Lord's Supper is giving to us, forgiveness of sins. If, if it's only symbolic, if it's just representing the cross and what happened at the cross, where is the certainty for the Christian? I want to receive the actual forgiveness of my sins. I don't want to receive a symbol of the forgiveness of my sins. I would rather actually receive the forgiveness of my sins. I would actually receive the fruit of the cross rather than a picture of the fruit of the cross. So the importance of actual presence gets to the heart of why you're a Christian. Why do you believe in Jesus? Because he's good for his word, because he told you that he died for you and that he was raised from the dead for you. Well, at the Lord's Supper, you're receiving that very word you're receiving that very certainty in an actual, true, present way. It is not symbolic. It does not merely represent it, but it actually is the gift for the strengthening of your faith in understanding that you are forgiven of your sin. Absolutely. That certainty, that word is the gospel itself, and that's what we love to confess here. So thank you to Pastor Tyrell Bramwell for joining us for Concord Matters today and talking us through the confession of the gospel with regard to the teaching of the Holy Supper of Christ. If you have a question or comment that you would like to leave for us to address the next time we convene for Concord, you can leave us a message by phone 314-996-1542, email kfeo at kfeo.org, on social media at KFO Radio. Thank you for stopping by today, dear listener. Until next time, keep confessing, church.